Welcome to Boston Children's Answers Kids Health. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Arnold. As a mom and a doctor, I'm passionate about helping kids stay healthy and happy. So join me as I chat with other Boston Children's experts to find answers for you and your family. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Today, we're going to talk about something I am super passionate about. So let's dive in. But before we do that, let's hear today's parent question. Hi, I'm Julie. My son is needing surgery, and I can't help but just be nervous and a little scared as a mom. Is there anything that you can tell me to help me feel a bit more confident that his surgery will be successful? So here to help us talk about this very important topic, one that's near and dear to my heart, is Dr. Peter Weinstock. He is our Executive Director of Immersive Design Systems here at Boston Children's Hospital, my dear friend, colleague, and actually my boss. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Peter. Uh, Thank you. It's just great to be here. Very excited. Well, I appreciate your joining us today. I like to start off all of these conversations with a common question of why you got into the specialty that you're in. Mm. But before we do that, I think it would be important for our audience to understand what is healthcare simulation, because not everyone may be familiar with that. Ah, we're going to do this together, I am sure. <laughs> yes. Um, but probably the best way to, to think about healthcare simulation is the idea of rehearsal, the idea of practice. And it really is basically practice for healthcare. And we're going to talk, I'm sure, a lot today about how we've been able to expand that idea and make it not just practice for doctors and nurses, but practice for patients and families. You can imagine the airline industry and flight simulators where pilots practice various elements of flying a plane. And sometimes practice when things aren't going so well. Exactly, being prepared for the worst case scenario. Yeah, they have to land a plane in an emergency. So about, it's almost 30 years now, 25 years ago, started to adapt that thinking into healthcare and developed this field of medical simulation, which is really practice for for better healthcare. That's like one way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's really just an important tool for us to be at our best. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really helpful for our listeners to understand what it is that we do, right? I think it's not intuitive to everyone that healthcare institutions 20 years ago may not have had simulation programs and just what an important tool it is to helping us to be at our best, to help improve patient care, patient safety. But how did you get into this area? So many years so, ago. So, as you know, I was actually a molecular biologist. In fact, my PhD was in molecular biology. And when I came here to Boston Children's, I had trained in surgery for a little while and so on, but came here, I was ready to open a lab in molecular biology. And talk about being in the right place at the right time. I was a trainee. And I walk into a room for a training experience, and there sitting in front of me is this robotic child. It's a, a mannequin in front of me. And the monitors are running and things are happening. And I'm basically put into this space to take care of this mannequin. But very quickly in my mind, felt like I was taking care of a child. And watching the monitor, I'm with a team, watching how things are changing. And we're talking about what could be going on. And the child really isn't doing very well. And after a lot of discussion, we made a decision that probably what was happening for this child was that some fluid was accumulating around the heart. The way to fix that is you have to put a needle and drain some of that fluid. And so in the simulator, we went ahead and did that. And lo and behold, everything got better. You saved the life. I saved the... And here was the key, though. So I'm still a molecular biologist until this moment. About two weeks later, 
It's a true story. I'm in the intensive care unit as a trainee taking care of all my patients. I get called into a room, and there in front of me is a child, a real child, and I'm watching the vital signs, and we're teams starting to come in, and I'm starting to lead this team, and it becomes very clear to me very quickly what is wrong. And why was it very clear very quick? Because I had seen it before. Yep. And I said to the team, this is a pericardial effusion is the fancy name for that yep. problem. And I said, we need to fix this. And they said, oh, are you sure? There was like a bit of hesitancy and because it's a big deal. Yes. To, and I said, I'm absolutely sure. And we looked at it and we got a little quick confirmation. And that's what the problem was. And we fixed it. Just like that. And I, in that moment, Jen, said, there is something here. And probably around the same time you were having these discoveries because we've been doing this the same amount of time. <laughs> I know. And I said, there is a new way to think about healthcare. There's a new way to think about how we train and how we provide care to the patients that we care for every day. And I went into my chief's office and I said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. I said, which do you want first? You said, I don't know, give me the bad news. I said, the bad news is I'm leaving molecular biology. Oh. And he said, and that's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, what's the good news? I said, I think I found my passion. I found my career. It's going to be pediatric medical simulation. And to his credit, he said, go for it. He said, I think you're right. And it was him, Jeff Burns, had the insight to bring that mannequin into the hospital. And it had such an impression on me. I always say the Jerry Maguire line, it, uh, it had me at hello. Yes. And that's how I got involved. And really was very focused from the very beginning on making it a hospital-wide initiative, really creating the opportunity for everyone to benefit from what I saw as a real new paradigm in, in healthcare. So probably not what you expected, but that's how I got into it. <laughs> I, I love that story because you got involved as the learner first. You saw the value as a learner in simulation and then decided we need to make this happen everywhere. I think that's powerful. If it would have happened any other way, I don't know if it would have been as impactful for a career change. Yep. But you really are right. I experienced it firsthand and just felt its power. So yeah. All the more reason I'm excited to be here and chat with you. So, yeah. <laughs> well, same here. Yeah. We get each other and the value of this whole field. I'll share a funny anecdote yeah. story. Yeah. You know, when I first was dating my husband, Bill, who you know. Of course. And I told him about what I did. I said, this is where I'm focusing a lot of my efforts. And yes, I love caring for babies, but I really love caring for robot babies. <laughs> and he was like, what? And then when I told him what it was, and I said it was relatively new and not widespread. So I'm really hoping we can help to grow it. And he was like, what do you mean it's not widespread? What do you mean you don't simulate or practice on mannequins before you practice? I'm like, no, no, we do the see one, do one, teach one method. Yeah. It's an apprenticeship method. I did my first intubation, my first pericardiocentesis, right? All of those things on real patients. And that's not the best way to do it. Yeah. There's a better way. Totally, yeah. I remember those moments. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, we're at this now as a community in simulation, probably 20 years, 25 yeah. years or so. But like anything in healthcare, it's a cultural change. So along those lines, yeah. I'm curious if you could help explain those different applications of mm. simulation in healthcare. Like how we can use the tool, the ways it can be leveraged, because they're not all just about education and training. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about those. I would love to. So for the audience, is really to imagine you are walking into a patient's room. As I described in my case, all the monitoring is running, all of the room is activated, 
there is an issue going on. It could be a crisis. It could be just general care. All of that's going on. You're immersed in that. And the only difference is that it's not a real child. The only difference is that it's a mannequin. Now take a picture of that. <laughs> we have a moment that is the work that we do every day, but it has been created on demand. A lot of what we love about it, I think, is there's a real theater component. I mean, we have designed the scenario in a way that really creates a certain set of challenges. In the end, it is a moment in time. It's recreating clinical work. So if you do that, it's really wide open, the applications that you can use that moment in time for. So let's keep ourselves in that moment of time. And now let's look at the trainees, right? So one of the pillars of immersive design systems is training and performance. <laughs> training and performance is focused on the healthcare providers in that room being able to train, and that can be medical students. It could be our more graduated trainees. We call them residents or fellows. It could be our senior level staff yeah. that are using it for a new approach, a new guideline, a new practice. I mean, these are the best of the best, but we're always learning. We're always exactly. innovating. So that training and because performance- experienced clinicians. Experienced clinicians yep. are using it, right? So that is one major pillar yep. to train junior all the way through our most senior staff, okay? Now, lights down, lights back up. They're engaging in this care of this mannequin. What are we also learning in that moment? We're also learning about how humans interact with humans, but also how people interact with their environments and how they interact with the technology. And we're surrounded yes. by technology. <laughs> and we are able, using the simulator, to make observations about how we work in our environments and make that relationship between us and the environments in which we care for our children as good as they can possibly be. Yeah. And that's the second pillar. So that is what we call our human factors, yeah. which is really about learning about how humans interact with their environment, and systems design pillar, yeah. our HFSD. Yep. Can so, I share a story about that one? I would love that. If our audience is trying to understand that human factor piece, yeah. one of the things we yeah. do are system evaluations of construction, building, right? How we it's lay a out example. a space. Yeah. And I was just thinking back to where we tested a new NICU environment, much like we just opened the Hale building. Yeah. This did not happen here, but in another institution, we ran a code after the building was built, but before we brought patients into the building, what I would call post-construction mm -hmm. system evaluation. Mm -hmm. And... We ran a resuscitation, a baby who was in an emergency situation. And we noticed that when we ran the scenario with all the appropriate personnel, they could not get enough access to the baby because of a monitor that had been placed on a boom huh. close to the baby that during walkthroughs in pre-construction, everyone right. thought was wonderful. Yeah. I can document yeah. and I can see my patient. So convenient for everyday workflow. But in a crisis, it was unsafe. Problems are often hidden. They're hidden. In, until you animate it. Yeah, that's to, so interesting. Until you yeah. live it and you see it. a great it. example. And they had to remove every boom and every bed space, right. all 40 beds. So in that process, we can uncover things before they have an impact on a patient. Yeah. That's a great, great example. Sorry, just that no, 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 it's highlight that. No, that's exactly what we use it for. That's why yeah. I love this. And it really gives us a leg up because same ideas are applied throughout the institution. And this is all before a patient is ever brought into a space. 
right? So the new building that just went up, yeah. same idea. Really animate the plans, take a look, make sure it's all working, almost crash test the environment way before we bring a patient yeah. in. And you all did that in the program here to test that whole building so that building is safer today, I would imagine, yeah. because of all of that amazing work you did. And we, and we continue to use simulation. You can use it continuously to keep testing those environments. And so the third mm -hmm. pillar goes back to a guy named Gavin Hayes. And Gavin was one of our first engineers. So in simulation, we have a specialized group. Another way to think about them is they're our puppeteers. They are the people who are behind the scenes who are making all that work, making the monitors come to life, making the room come to life. And some of them are controlling the mannequin, much like a puppet. And they're incredibly skilled individuals. Gavin, many years ago, was working with the commercially available mannequins or simulators. Yep. And we needed to do a scenario for otolaryngologists, which are surgeons who do ears, nose, and throat type of surgery. They came to us and they wanted to do a simulation, but we did not have a simulator that could recreate what it was they needed. So Gavin, who's an engineer, all of a sudden steps away. He grabs some silicone, which is kind of a rubbery, moldable material, mm. and brought it over to the mannequin. And before you know it, there was kind of a puff of smoke in his engineering magic. <laughs> and there was this element of the trainer that he had created. Wow. And all of a sudden, we were able to do the training that we weren't able before. Wow. So now fast forward. We have here a really unique facility, and it's called our Makerspace Studio. And it is what Gavin started. It is a facility that contains... Robotics people, engineers, people who do animatronics. You know, it's like Disney almost. Oh, absolutely. And they can create <laughs> these mannequins and trainers. So we're not relying anymore on what industry will provide. We can build it here. And the beauty of that is that we have such skilled surgeons, clinicians, and nurses that can inform what exactly we need as a teaching tool. So we don't have to rely on a company, we can do it. And the beauty of that is that we can also do that not just for ourselves, but we are able to help other centers by helping them build what they need to do training locally. So that whole space has really just been, been fascinating and very unique to what we do. One other thing about it that is really cool, comes back now almost 15 years, there was this new technology called three-dimensional printing. <laughs> and I'm sure you heard of it. I have. And, and many in the audience may have heard of it. But three-dimensional printing had been in other industries, but it was just starting to show its face in healthcare, and we jumped on that. Imagine a printer on your desk, but instead of doing it on a piece of paper, it's multiple pieces of paper that are starting to stack up layers that allow you to build a three-dimensional object. Really incredible. It's super cool. It's so fun to see in action as right? well, by and, the way. way. If anyone they, hasn't seen one, they should go watch a 3D printer it's like, in action. It's really like magic it watching it. Yeah. But we were able to then partner with radiology, and in particular, Dr. Sanjay Prabhu, who is our director of the three-dimensional printing service, and turn images, CT scans, MRI scans, of a patient into their three-dimensional print. And so now, it's the ultimate in simulation, because now surgeons can take what's in an image, turn it into something that they can put in front of them on a table, and either design a surgery, practice a surgery, teach a surgery. So yeah. that element of this uh, makerspace has yeah. just been spectacular. Well, particularly in pediatrics where patients typically have such unique complexity, right, from a surgical perspective, to be able to print out their anatomy and have the surgeons 
I've heard you say this, operate twice, can but allow them. But cut once. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Allows them to be not only more prepared, but sometimes identify complications they would not have known about until they were in the operating room. Yeah. And that is a game changer. And it's been great. The surgical groups here have just been so open and enthusiastic, and they themselves are such innovators. How do we leverage that as much as we can? Both to make people feel really prepared, but I think what comes along with that a little bit is when people feel prepared, they feel more comfortable and they feel less anxious and in control. We've thought a lot about that and how can we now pivot what we do in simulation and direct those opportunities towards our patients and families. Oh, 100%. It's <laughs> my favorite part of simulation. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's talk about patients and families since okay. you brought it up because you know that is something near and dear to my heart. How did you know I wanted to talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, anything that we can do, right, that can help to improve outcomes for, for our patients is obviously the heart of everything that we do. Everything has that purpose, that goalpost in mind, that North Star. Yeah. So tell me from your perspective about oh how design systems got involved in what I would call patient-centered simulation, right? Simulation as a tool yeah. for our patients and their home caregivers. All right. Well, we're going to tag team this, Jen, because okay. you're <laughs> world known for this kind of work. The driver for us has been that realization that simulation fundamentally is creating a sense of calm confidence. In the first wave, we saw it in the medical clinicians. In the second wave, we started to see it in the surgical world, and that has just exploded, being able to really energize confidence in high-stakes operating room environments. So yeah. we had this experience, and it just drove us to say, who are the people who could really benefit from this in a very different way? And it was clearly the patients and families. So we brought on board Brianna O'Connell, who's this Amazing. tremendously yep. talented individual, who is a child life specialist, yep. among other things. And she had that insight and know-how, how to leverage it optimally. And we use it in all sorts of ways now, preparing patients and families for going home. Why? Because no one walks into a hospital totally calm and confident. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nobody does. No. Nobody does. I mean, there's this sense of, of fear, of anxiety. You know, Madame Curie, the Nobel laureate, said, there's nothing to be feared. It is just to be understood. And that has been a real driver for me. How do we take the unknown, which is the undercurrent of fear, and make it known? For example, imagine a family who has survived an illness with their child and they have to go home with a new feeding tube in their nose or with a new ventilator. Yeah. Or a um, central line. Or a central line. The old version of that was we would give them all those recommendations, you know, oh, yeah. get it all set up yeah. and then send them home. Well, imagine if you can bring them in a simulated environment that feels and looks like the home, and that's what we have over at IDS, and give them a chance to see what the technology will look like, feel it, touch it, run through some scenarios yeah. and learn in that safe environment with all of their support how to deal with that. Well, that's exactly why I got into this area mm. of simulation because we were sending home so many babies with medical complexity, right? Yeah. You get these complex totally. babies and they have technology totally. dependence. And so I was early on in my career as a neonatologist and I was scared to send home our babies with tracheostomies and ventilators, knowing that I kept hearing they would bounce back and then they'd yeah. see you in the critical care right. ICU when they no, but came you, back but to the hospital. But you felt the anxiety. But I, I mean, felt the trying, anxiety. Yeah, because like, you knew what they were facing. Exactly. Are yeah. they ready? Did they have a chance to practice enough? We had a great discharge education plan that was at the bedside for them on their child. Right. 
if an emergency happened, which we came to realize that up to 80% of our patients could have a life-threatening tracheostomy-related emergency upon discharge after going home, but if an emergency happened in the hospital, yeah. we weren't going to sit back as the doctors and nurses and say, okay, mom and dad, you practice because right. in case this happens oh, at home, you have to not. be able to. Yeah, we're yeah. going to manage that. Yeah. So it just occurred to me that parents are the first responders. They are the primary caregivers when we send these you know, patients home. And so with my sim hat, totally. I was like, why aren't we doing this for them? You had asked about what is simulation. And one of the words I didn't use is experience. And human beings, particularly adults, we know are predominantly experiential learners. You never learn something nearly as well except when you experience it. Someone can tell you. <laughs> someone can give you some instructions. Yep. But we all know the first thing you do when you get home, when you get a new device or a new computer, you just open it up, you turn the on button. No one looks at the instructions, no. right? Because you're going to learn through experience. And that's what's so powerful, I think, about the patient and family work exactly. is that it's speaking to the way I think we all learn best. And I sometimes talk about it's sort of the animated textbook Right, so these are the animated discharge instructions. Yeah, is another way to think about it. I like it. that. And here we have such a robust program for our patients and families with simulation that so mm. many of our patients have the access, depending on what their medical complexity is, to come get that training. And I just hope that every child, every parent, has that opportunity to yeah. help them be better prepared for going home. All of this is only possible when you have collaboration. And that's what I love about Boston Children's. We have collaborations with the surgical departments. Orthopedic surgery, as you know, has the Sim Discovery Program, where children literally come to the Sim Center. It's been totally designed to look like their experience through their operation, but it's not their operation on this round. It's their teddy bear's operation, yep. right? I love that. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. And then they go look up on the screen on the x-ray, and lo and behold, their teddy bear has the same scoliosis. But that's been such a powerful program, and that was only possible because we partnered with orthopedics. Yeah. So it's a special place for that. All for the best interest, the best outcomes for our patients. So I want to come back to our discussion about our device and VR solutions pillar, sure. because we really didn't talk about the VR part, oh, which is the also... The tsunami yes. of virtual reality <laughs> <laughs> that we're all experiencing. It's, it's yeah. everywhere, right? It's I mean, unbelievable. It's growing in the gaming population. It's obviously growing in our general world, right? Yeah. VR is here to stay. It's growing in its application. Yeah. But talk to us a little bit about how we're using it that, in training and simulation. Yeah, that has been such an interesting journey, and we're just beginning it, Jen, as you know. Here's the thing. We touched on why adult learners veer towards experience as their way of learning. And my gosh, I mean, virtual reality is experience, right? It's surrounding you. The technology is compelling. And it is, in some ways, a natural fit for human beings and for adult learners. So we're taking it seriously. And we're investing pretty heavily in looking at how do you create or identify the right application for this really cool technology. Yeah. Over the years, talked a lot about not getting distracted by all of the technology, right? We talked about mannequins and robots and 3D printing. Everyone <laughs> could hear this and say, oh, that's what simulation is. It's about the technology, and we know it's not. It's about how do you create environments that people want to be in and they want to learn in. And that's all about how you structure those experiences. And so now it's really about how do we do that? How do we reinvent that for the virtual reality platform and for the re virtual reality technology? Jeff Jacobson, Steve Wilson, and that team has built and continue to build what we call our XR service line. So you're probably thinking, why am I saying XR? Weren't we talking about VR? Yeah, yeah. When we talk about virtual reality, it's almost like putting a TV screen on your face, yeah. right? Can't see anything else Can't other than that else. virtual you're excluded. environment. That's right. And you can do an enormous amount in that space. Yeah. There's another thing called augmented reality. And augmented reality is also super cool. 
you put the goggles on, but it's a little more like you're putting your glasses on because you still see the environment, mm -hmm. but what you're able to do is add in additional kind of cartoons yep. in some ways or animations that augment your environment. So for example, there are some furniture companies that are using augmented reality where you can choose to look how a dresser or a bed I might... just did this last oh, you weekend. Did. Okay. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a great yeah. update. It's a great... Yeah. I can look at the coffee table in my space and say, is it going to fit? How's yeah. it going to look? I don't Super have to cool. guess. And you, and you might decide just on that. Yep. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Right? As opposed to the old days where it's like this measuring tape and trying <laughs> to remember and jotting things down. <laughs> so we can use that augmented reality We've built little applications where they can take a ventilator, for example, or a new device, and is still in the hospital, overlay that on their actual child's bedroom, for example. So that's augmented reality. When you start talking about these different technologies, you need a, a bucket to place them all in. And so that's what we call XR, which is all of, it's all of it. We are now developing programs and, and products that are both for training, mm -hmm. but you can use them also therapeutically. So imagine a child who is going to have a CT scan or an MRI scan. And those are big machines where the child has to have essentially placed inside the machine. And there's a lot of anxiety about that. And sometimes we have to give a little bit of medication by an anesthesiologist to try to calm them so that it's not unnerving for them. So they can hold still. They can hold still and be able to get, get the, the image. We found that if you use virtual reality, you could, in many cases have no medication necessary. Which is incredible. Incredible. And there's yep. lots of this that we're exploring. So again, yeah. because we have someone like Jeff on our team that can create these experiences, yeah. but they're not easy to make, right? There's a lot of complexity just into the technology, but it is getting easier. Yeah. And that's allowing Definitely. us to really expand. Yeah. And we, we, we hope to be part of that, uh, making it easier. Yes, you know, solution. I like that. I love that. Um, we yes. really like to do that. Yeah, so, that yeah. way it can be scaled, just yeah. like our other patient family work. Totally. Really cool yeah. stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, I could do this all day, and I know we have limited time, but I love sharing what we do. So switching gears, what makes our program mm. different than maybe other simulation programs? What's unique about this here? We're surrounded by a community of people now that do simulation throughout the world. We are very connected to that community. It's just been so enjoyable to be part of this really amazing group of international innovators around a new way to do medicine. I think that what we're known for in many ways is how do you bring simulation to the bedside? How do we get it into the hands of the people that are delivering care today yep. and tomorrow? And we developed a program that really does that well. And so lots of utilizations of simulation for education and so on, and all important, our focus really has been on getting simulation into the hands of people that are delivering care. And that's been a real focus, I think, for this program, functional simulation. Well, I might add that yeah. I think there's also one other differentiator here, which is why I was so excited to come join you in this program, is that I think you have just led this with such vision for taking simulation to the next level. Oh. Where can we apply it next to have the biggest impact? I admire that about you. And that's, oh. I think, another differentiator that we have here that you probably would not say yourself, but I would like to point out. Very I think kind it's of important. You. Of course. Well, so something else that you are very passionate about is how we bring it to others. There's a lot of programs that we're partnering with across the globe to help them create simulation programs. So I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the international work and, and how it's going. 
We've tried to be innovative and push the field. A lot of that has been also equally about how do we transfer this? How do we scale it? It's gotten even more interesting. Just now a community has arisen around this type of effort, trying to get standards and so on. It's one thing to say we can do it at Boston Children's Hospital. It's another thing, and I think even a more important thing, to be able to say we can help others do this all over the world. And so we got involved very early on in Europe, helped programs in Italy and in Spain and in the United Kingdom. And then fast forward a couple of years and that started to gain traction and started to work in Australasia and in New Zealand and Australia. And more recently now, we're involved in India and Africa. And what's happened as a result of that is that a lot of those groups and teams through this network started to get to know each other. And slowly but surely, they started to form a larger community that evolved eventually into a society yep. um, for <laughs> pediatric simulation. You Amazing, know? yes. It's like incredible. I'm, you <laughs> yes. know, you've been so involved in <laughs> yeah. that, and we have so many friends that are part of that all over the world. So I think that's been both really enjoyable work, but really important work for us. And the best part is that it's no longer us helping, it's learning. We're learning from centers all over that are doing amazing work. We bring back so much from these experiences that change the way we do things. So the international projects are super important and they also serve a little bit as a validation step. You know, it, if it works in other places, it, it means it's a reasonably good method. So that's been really helpful. Well, and I think too, just the concept of creating those partnerships, it's a win-win for both, mm. as you mentioned, but also simulation is relatively new. So by having that collaboration, that partnership, learning from each other, we're just, we're rising everybody up and we're helping to create the standards for how to do this and how to leverage it as a tool to improve healthcare in every hospital setting. Yeah. So it's really fundamental. It's, it's great. And yeah. it forces you to get back to what are the rudiments of what you actually do? And it forces you to stop getting distracted by the shiny objects and really get back to, it's about rehearsal. Yeah. It's about practice. And that can be created in any environment. And then it becomes really about the method to make that happen and less about the yes. bells and whistles. And that's been really important for us because it keeps focusing us on the work exactly. and less on the toys. Exactly. They're just the, the means to get yeah, to the goal. Totally. So, so we've talked a lot about simulation speaking about that growth and your interest about taking it to the next level. What's on the horizon? What's next in our field? Oh, my. I know. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> That's a tough question. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think there's two parts to that answer. The quick one, we touched on already. There's going to be new technologies around creating immersive environments, and they can be all sorts. We do a lot of work, for example, which may or may not actually include mannequins, mm -hmm. but instead include professional actors that are able to recreate the roles, for example, of parents. And we do that in collaboration with our parent advisory group so that they can realistically represent. And then all of a sudden now you have a training opportunity. So it's a great point. It may not involve any digital technology. No. It might involve <laughs> an actor or another human being. So that, that's on the side of changing immersive technologies. The other side that I'm really excited about is what I'll call the adjacent industries that now we can have impact on. And let me explain mm. what I mean by that. Over the years, we've always said simulation is an excuse to debrief, right? We yes. haven't really talked about debriefing very much, but it's a big part of this process. You go in, you're involved in a simulation, and that's like 10% of the work because really what you want to do now is leverage that to understand what we do well and what we can do better. And you have to create an environment where people 
feel comfortable having those conversations. And in many ways, you're facing your failure in a safe place. Exactly. But but you're ultimately needing to do that, and that's a skill. You know, that's, well, and if you don't talk about the errors, the mistakes, you're not going to learn from it. You're not going to learn, and you're not going to yep. get the most out of the simulation. Yep. And so what ended up happening now is we got really good at facilitating productive conversations and creating environments in where people felt safe to speak up. And there's this whole area of something called psychological safety, which is about feeling the willingness to speak up, feeling like there isn't risk to you if you speak what you're thinking. And you can imagine how important that is in every industry, oh, yeah. but certainly in medicine. So now we came in as sort of mannequin specialists, <laughs> but we're coming out of this into this next phase of our careers in our field as really experts in a whole lot of elements that are so important to delivering great care. And I'm really excited about having us keep building that and being a resource, bringing the mannequins when we need them. Yep. But being able to also provide some of these other services around just creating safe environments to talk about how can we provide the best care we can? Well, it's, it's about improving human behavior. And the whole purpose of doing simulation, right, is to change behavior. And you mentioned something that we haven't really touched upon is we know that errors happen, right? And today, medical errors are one of the top leading causes of death in our country. And what is so valuable about simulation is that it's an opportunity to study and improve human behavior, to learn from errors and then prevent them from happening in the real world. And ultimately, whether it's a system issue with our human factors work or it's someone's afraid to speak up in a time of a potential error happening, by practicing these skills, we can actually decrease harm. We can improve patient care outcomes and safety. And we've learned this from the airline industry. When a crisis happens, you have to be able to react quickly and you need to be rehearsed. And simulation is really our best tool to making that better. That's a, just a great way to put it. I totally agree. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Oh, you're well, so welcome. I'm having so much fun chatting with you. And normally I try to wrap up our conversations with what else have we not talked about that we should for our audience to learn about. But I'm fearful that you and I will just continue to talk for another half hour. So yeah. I'm thinking for the purposes of time, maybe we'll just move on. But I just want to say thank you so much oh. for taking time out to chat with us today and share what is both of our life passions. Yeah. Well, so. thank you so much for the opportunity, Jen. This is uh, super, super fun. Thank you. Now on to doctor's orders, the part of the show where we prescribe an action that parents can use to help them in raising healthy kids. For today, let's go back to Julie, whose son needs surgery. I hope that every parent thinks about simulation as part of the conversation in the care for their kids. It's an important tool for all of us, not just healthcare clinicians, but for patients and families. Simulation is growing and it could be a very good fit for you. Thanks for listening to Boston Children's Answers Kids Health. I'd also like to thank our guest parent, Julie, and our guest expert, Dr. Peter Weinstock. Remember to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date on the latest episodes. Thanks, everyone, and see you soon. Bye.